listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 230. This is the first installment in our two-part series on Occupy Wall Street 10 years on, in conjunction with the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. This episode of Belabored was developed as part of a collective of podcasts brought together to explore the legacy of Occupy in light of this 10-year anniversary. Through this project, you can also hear analysis on the impact of Occupy from The Dig and several of your other favorite podcasts. The producing partners for this project are the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation's New York office and the New School's Milano program. We encourage you to learn more and listen to some of the other episodes by visiting rosalux.nyc occupy. In this episode, we will hear from labor organizers Stephen Lerner and Jonathan Weston of New York Communities for Change. And in part two, we'll hear from labor scholar Ruth Milkman and organizer Nasran Mohit. But first, the news. For the discerning coffee drinker, the brand of Starbucks coffee is associated with a few iconic trends, such as pretentious names for serving sizes, gratuitous use of pumpkin spice, your misspelled name on your frappuccino cup, etc. But in the coming months, a handful of Starbucks outlets in Buffalo, New York, may help set a different trend that the executives would rather not see at its stores, becoming a union shop. Starbucks HQ has gone all out trying to crush an organizing drive that has been gaining momentum in Buffalo. Last month, three local Starbucks branches filed for union elections under the banner of Starbucks Workers United. The management has responded predictably with an anti-union propaganda campaign, and it's even reportedly sent managers to the stores to work alongside workers and chat them up and chumily assist them with their tasks, a move that workers have described as intimidating and creepy. But the workers' conviction has only seemed to grow in recent weeks. Baristas at a fourth and fifth Starbucks in the area have also announced their intention to vote to form a union, noting that most of the staff had already expressed their approval. The initial three stores that announced the union campaign in August have roughly 20 to 30 workers each. Workers say that their main goal is to strengthen their voice in the job, and they've complained about exhausting work schedules, crushing pressure to meet performance metrics, being pressured to work while sick, and early on in the pandemic, having inadequate masking and infection control protocols. Starbucks is no stranger to labor battles. Back in 2004, the Industrial Workers of the World began organizing Starbucks workers in New York and managed to enlist workers at stores in Chicago, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Cincinnati, Quebec City, Bloomington, Minnesota, and Omaha. If Starbucks Workers United prevails and becomes a fully recognized union, the victory would complement the recent unionization of workers at the Colectivo chain of gourmet coffee shops in the Midwest, who recently became part of Electrical Workers Local 494. Now, previous attempts to formally unionize at Starbucks have been thwarted by the company. But in recent years, the chain has come under fire for forcing workers to take on long shifts back to back, violating occupational safety rules, and even allegedly engaging in racial profiling of customers. But Starbucks's public relations machine is even more robust than its dark roast. In 2014, after much negative media coverage, the company announced that it planned to finally end the so-called clopening, in which workers close and open the shop in brutal back-to-back shifts. It has also offered employees health insurance and even a subsidized online degree program. Yet despite these perks, workers in Buffalo still want to organize for equitable working conditions. Even as it seeks to quash the nascent organizing drive through scare tactics, Starbucks has claimed to the media that its anti-union meetings are a legitimate community education effort and that it simply wants to, quote, create these space and forums for open and honest conversation as it relates to establishing and maintaining a great work environment, unquote. 
But one worker organizer, Alexis Rizzo, told the New York Times that the organizing effort grew as the pandemic changed the conversation around the quality of their work environment. She said, quote, with the pandemic and labor shortages, the fact that for once we're not totally disposable, they need us. It was the perfect time, unquote. So Starbucks Workers United have their site on a more suitable forum to give their honest opinion about their boss, a ballot box. While the nurses at St. Vincent Hospital in Massachusetts remain out on strike as of this recording, a strike that just reached the six-month mark, they are pushing for a return-to-work agreement that guarantees all striking nurses their old positions back. But nurses and hospital workers around the country are reaching their breaking points. In Birmingham, Alabama, nurses on the night shift at the University of Alabama Birmingham UAB Hospital refused to clock in holding a protest outside of the hospital and demanding fair compensation for their work. Over 25 emergency room workers spoke to reporters outside, saying that they were fighting for equal compensation to others in the hospital. One said, a lot of us have worked through both COVID surges. We're still expected to work at max capacity while we're understaffed. We are the front line. We see all the COVID patients first before they go upstairs. It was, another nurse said, the first time they'd taken this kind of action. We've just gotten to the point where we're extremely overwhelmed, we're extremely defeated. We just want our voices to be heard so we don't lose confidence in that care. We want to be equally treated while we save all the lives that we do. The hospital, of course, like much of the country, and particularly the South, is in the middle of a COVID surge, and many of the patients the nurses are currently seeing are unvaccinated. Lindsay Harris, who is president of the Alabama State Nurses Association, told reporters that Alabama nurses are paid 8% less on average than their counterparts in neighboring states. It's been a year and a half of COVID, and the pandemic isn't slowing down in too much of the country. And healthcare workers are understandably burned out, exhausted, and scared. And of course, they remain underpaid and understaffed and patch together the holes in a non-functional healthcare system. It's not a surprise that workers around the country are striking, nor indeed nurses and hospital workers around the world. Next week marks 10 years since the beginning of Occupy Wall Street in Zuccotti Park in Lower Manhattan. And so this episode and next episode, we are spending the bulk of our show talking about Occupy and its influence on the labor movement with some people who were there and who have tried to apply some of those lessons to their organizing since. This week, we are joined by Jonathan Weston, director of New York Communities for Change, and Stephen Lerner, who's an organizer and bargaining for the common good fellow at Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor. So yeah, to start off, I wanted to go back to sort of first impressions of Occupy Wall Street. When did you first hear about it? What were your thoughts? And if you could introduce yourselves the first time you speak so people know your voices, that would be great. I can start. Uh... Jonathan Weston, uh, I'm the director of New York Communities for Change. Um, the first thing I remember from Occupy, um, we were doing mobilizations on Wall Street during this march called uh, On May 12th, which is a march against the banks. Um, we in on May 12th of that year, so a few months beforehand. Um, so a couple months after, during the summer. I ran into one of um, a friend of mine that was organizing uh, in that in that march we did in um, you know May twelfth, and he was passing out flyers for this Zuccotti Park meetup, um, Occupy. I, I don't even remember exactly. I think it was called Occupy Wall Street, 
Um, and he's like, oh, you got to come. This is going to be great. And I kind of uh, brushed it off. I was like, I don't know. It just might be like, you know, 15 leftists in a park uh, with no aim, no, um, you know, theory of change, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the first time I heard about it. I did not go to the initial march and rally. Um, but then after that first week, um, you know, obviously things exploded and, you know, we were there constantly, but that, that was really the first time I heard it was just from like a random friend on the subway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I had a, this is Stephen Lerner, um, of its initiative for labor of the working poor and bargaining for common good. Similar to, to Jonathan, it, we were doing not just the on May 12th March, but we were doing rallies and marches all over the country around the housing crisis. Some of this may seem familiar, 10 years later, evictions and all of that. And when similar to Jonathan, when I first heard about, um, I saw it online or something, I was sort of, so what is this? Is this going to be real? And it was also at the time where um, Glenn Beck was attacking me. Oh, um, oh with, right a terrible, horrible person and an economic terrorist and all that. But my first real connection to Occupy Wall Street actually was we had a big, big march in Boston um, on Bank of America and had thousands of people. And these marches we're doing around the country overlapped with the start of Occupy. And just to pause you for a second, who's we in these situations when you're saying we were doing these marches? Uh, Weston and Lerner. No, um, a whole series of community groups, um, a Southern California, New York Communities for Change, People's Action. We put together, we actually had created a group, I think, called New Bottom Line. And so a bunch of different community groups were doing these marches around the country on the banks. And in Boston, we had thousands of people. And then there was a small Occupy march. And then the way the press wrote about it was Occupy comes to Boston. And what was really interesting about it is initially within our alignment, a bunch of folks were mad. Why are they getting the credit? We were the turnout. And then it, and then as the thing grew and people said, it doesn't matter who gets credit. What's going on is something extraordinary here, which is that some kind of nerve has been tapped because we were doing the very traditional count your numbers. How do you get them there? Butts on the buses, however you want to record it. And then all of a sudden, this other thing started exploding. And that was really my first interaction with it. Yeah. And, and in those moments, um, like, I kind of remember the first time I went down to the occupation in New York and, and was like, sort of skeptical, like everybody was at first, I think, going like, what is this? And then realizing that, like, there's something going on here, just based on like, what people had done in the space and with the space. Um, so I wonder if you have thoughts on like, what the space and sort of holding that space rather than having the march that goes off at the specific time on the specific day meant. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think it was a new tactic, honestly. Um, I mean, obviously not a new tactic, like historically, I mean, historically there's been lots of movements to take over space. And I think, you know, I think a lot of it was a imitation of what was happening in Egypt at the time. And a lot of folks, you know, um, or very aware of what was happening and kind of the overthrow of the government in Egypt and uh, Tahir Square and all that. So there was a lot of those vibes uh, that were happening. And I think, you know, the space created the confrontation, right? And I think that's a lot of what created the 
you know, kind of mass movement, um, you know, people's interest in coming down, but also people's interest in not caving to the cops and not caving to the government to, you know, get rid of them. And uh, I think that was a huge part of the occupation. I think, um, you know, big part of the the tactic that built a narrative that has now lasted, you know, a decade plus later and helped build protest movements all across the globe. You know, it's interesting. Um, I sort of, I was at, um, at the Service Employees International Union then, and it was really interesting how skeptical most people in the labor movement were at the beginning. But early on, some of us started talking about in some ways, the idea that it wasn't just a march that ended, that there was a location is is how we think about strikes, which is you don't just have a march on the place you're on strike and go home. You set up camp in front of the building or or the factory you're on strike against. So I thought that was another really interesting thing and in that it, in some ways, what it led to was that the, the place, the space, as we call it, became the launching ground for different demonstrations and for all different things to happen. So it, 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 it didn't make it episodic. Much of what the left does is a big march, um, a choreographed arrest at lunch, and then you're out, of, you're out by the end of the day, and then you claim you've done something. What this was by staying in one place and then launching multiple activities and doing everything that came with it, it was a very, it had a permanence that challenged the establishment in a very different way. I remember in D.C. one time during the healthcare fight, people wanted to do civil disobedience, and I was a police liaison, and I said to the cops, um, everybody wants to get arrested now, and this cop said to me, this isn't a performance. If you guys want to get arrested, punch a cop, do something illegal. But I'm not going to arrest you so you look good on TV and can be home. And it was it was a very funny moment where the, the and he literally said, "We know what's going on. You're all on lunch break. An hour, you all have to go back to work. So do whatever the hell you want." And it really those two things happening overlapping in my mind really crystallized the difference between this performative choreographed civil disobedience we do versus a fundamental challenge. And I think ironically, the space was one thing, but the marches out of the space, I really felt like were the reason this thing exploded. Yeah. Um, You know, it was when they decided to start marching out of the park into the streets uh, and like through downtown Manhattan, which, you know, for folks that don't know, is the financial district is Wall Street is the center of capital and uh, America and probably across the globe. When they started marching through those streets and blocking streets and that's when uh, those women got maced yeah. and everything exploded. And it wasn't until that moment that people were really like, this is actually so it was also not being in the space, but it was also like doing direct actions out of the space like Stephen's talking about. To really set things off. I mean, set it off. And, you know, when they said, you know, they took over the Brooklyn Bridge and, yeah. you know, they were going everywhere and doing everything and, you know, creating chaos in uh, the financial district in Manhattan. Uh, and that's when things really exploded. And it became more than just kind of a lefty, like, you know, uh, commune circled, <laughs> you know, et cetera. <laughs> it became like a real global phenomenon. Yeah. 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 It's interesting because both of you mentioned cops, which has obviously become a major um, inflection point for the left and for the country um, in the years since Occupy. And so I guess like before we dig into sort of the labor relations part of this, I wonder if, yeah, both of you have a few more thoughts on how 
those early confrontations with the police like primed people to think about, I mean, shortly after that in New York, there was a fight against stop and frisk that, you know, Jonathan, you were really involved in. I mean, I think the, the confrontations with the cops, um, you know, and, you know, looking back on Occupy and honestly looking back on like 10 years of protests uh, since Occupy, uh, I, you know, it, it really feels like Occupy set up the framework for the modern day, like protest movement. Um, and a lot of the things I think, you know, Stephen was talking about in terms of how people traditionally protested, uh, especially in the States. And, you know, I probably can't speak for globally and um, in other countries, but, you know, in the U.S., you know, most of the protests were very staged. And I think that's uh, what we, um, you know, definitely in the labor movement, but also in the community organizing space and other spaces, very rarely was there just spontaneous disruption in a way that Occupy really started. And I, you know, think has carried through to the Black Lives Matter protests that have happened across the country and across the globe, um, where people were just done doing performative, uh, you know, marches and organizing, and you know, wanted to really you know, disrupt things. And I think in cities across the country, you saw that from you know, Minneapolis to St. Louis and, you know, across the country. And I, I think that, I think a lot of how we protest started at Occupy, we, we're just not going to allow the cops and the establishment and the government to tell us how and when we should protest. You know, and especially in New York, there's such a tradition of the barricades and you know, you you end up in this bullpen surrounded by cops and you're not allowed to do anything. And it's so disempowering um, when you do that. And so but I, I think this thing about the cops is really important because. It, it's, you know, they're in this image of you're at Wall Street and the cops are attacking people really vividly brought home who the cops serve. Right. That they're serving Wall Street. And there was something you know, mm-hmm. that was so clear about that, that you're at, you know, in Zuccotti Park, but I think across the street from where the governor also has his office, right, Jonathan? That's my memory. Everybody's watching. And then the cops start beating the shit out of people. And so it really, you know, it's interesting because, you know, throughout all the years on the labor movement, every major strike, maybe I'm jumping ahead, I've been involved in, we have a battle with the cops. And I think this was a new experience for some people to see how unrelenting and how aggressive. Like I remember one time I came up to Zuccotti Park. I also had meetings, so I had a sports jacket on. (laughs) And I I walked through Zuccotti Park and sort of as I came to the edge, this cop just starts screaming at me. And I was a guy in a sports jacket and you step one place and another, you step here, I'm going to kick your ass and all that. And it's like, you know, Cesar Chavez used to have a great quote, which is um, you, you don't learn about police brutality in school. You learn it at the end of a billy club. Yeah. And I think a lot of people learned about police brutality on the end of a billy club, and it really had a radicalizing effect on them. Yeah. So going back to a slightly different direction from there, um, you had been, Stephen particularly, um, pushing labor to think about finance, particularly after the 2008 crisis, but for a while to think about sort of who who the ultimate sort of beneficiaries and, and power are. Um, and so what were sort of the labor movement's 
reactions and attempts to deal with that before Occupy? Oh my gosh. I have to go deep. I mean, the labor movement then, and very much now still, doesn't think about the economy in the biggest way. They don't think about capital. They don't think about who really is control. Even think about the language that people talk about income equality reflectively. They don't talk about wealth inequality, which is just this enormous difference. And so I think the the, the idea that there were forces of banks and Wall Street who are not, we don't have collective bargaining with as being the primary drivers of what's um, causing greater and greater poverty, I don't think was in most people's heads. And I still think it's very hard for people to wrap their head around. Even the language we use is terrible, financialization and all of that. So I think it's ironic that a labor movement that was originally built around rhetoric of taking on capital, if you even use the word capitalism, people get nervous. So, um, you know, whereas capitalists are very happy to talk about capitalism. So I think it's really a struggle. And even if you look at a lot of what the labor movement's doing now, it's focused on trying to regain wages of the past, which is we should do, versus fundamentally challenging how the economy is organized. And it's organized in a way that means any success we have potentially is rolled back because we're not really challenging the true people who are running the economy. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to say to that, Jonathan, or also I wanted to ask you as well, like what was the response of your members to Occupy? Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it was interesting because, you know, if we want to be honest about what Occupy was, it was, it was definitely not my members that were down there sleeping in the park. And my members are mostly older black and Latino um, you know, immigrants, folks from, you know, uh, outer borough communities um, in New York City. So, I mean, I think there was a bit of skepticism in that, you know, what is this and who are these people? Um, but I, I, I mean, there was, it was an easy transition to, well, they're going after these folks that are responsible for the current foreclosure crisis and the current um, housing crisis, um, that connected for our folks. Um, and yeah, well, I think, you know, uh, unlike a lot of organizations, we, we began bringing down our members to the park pretty early. And I mean, frankly, they loved it. And like, you know, it was great. It was a good time. There was, it was interesting. There was lots of stuff going on at the park. Um, and they joined in some of the marches, but, um, you know, so I think it was a it was a very like dichotomous relationship with the occupation and with um, the park itself, but the the message resonated, uh, and I think that's you know one of the the big differences to a lot of kind of leftist protest movements, et cetera, is that uh, the connections were able to be made kind of across the board. On um, these are people that crashed the economy, and like this is what we're protesting. Because, um, I mean, those are the effects of the crash were being felt by people like daily, whether it was, you know, their loss of job or, you know, their housing, whatever it was, um, they understood that um, the people that were um, rebuilding out of the crash of 2008, 2009 um, were the wealthy and the well-connected and Wall Street. You know, the one thing that 
reminded me of is when we had a march starting down there that, or I don't know where we started, but where we did a tour of the richest people oh, yeah. in New York. I don't know if you remember that one, Jonathan. And, you know, the resonance of We Are 99% felt so real as you're marching up Park Avenue by Steve Schwartzman's house that I think this thing that Jonathan just hit is really important, which is, you know, for lots of union members, lots of other community group members, horizontalism, all that stuff, they didn't know what people were talking about. But when you said Steve Schwartzman and Paulson and all these guys are getting richer and richer and this is where they live. I remember one of my favorite events was they were talking about, um, I think it was Schwartzman who was saying, well, if you raise taxes, we'll move. And remember, we brought a moving van um, to Schwartzman's house. And he said, we're happy to help you move. You know, if you want to leave New York, God bless you. And I think that's the other important thing about Occupy. When we talk about the events, they were they were a lot of them not getting beaten or maced or tear gassed, but it was creative and it was fun and it captured people's imagination that it's not just the same old kind of thing. Yeah. So what was the response of sort of I don't want to say big labor because that is just such a horrible oxymoron at this point in time. But like, you know, I feel like I remember Rich Trumpka sending porta potties to Zakati. But like, yeah, what did what did you sort of feel about like unions' response to this thing? I think at first labor approached it very skeptically, and I think there were some labor unions that were skeptical of it the entire time. But there were other unions that actually leaned into it a bit. You know, the, the Transit Workers Union were probably the first union that came out in like full support of Occupy. The Teachers Union played a really big role. Their their headquarters in New York City were right next to the park, so um, they lent space to the occupation to store stuff, um, uh, etc. I think you know a number of unions you know um, financially supported the occupation. Um, but it was, you know, it was honestly a mixed bag, you know, some labor really embraced it and some really, you know, wanted nothing to do with it. So, um, yeah. And, and I, I still feel like that's how labor is to this day towards the left in general is, um, at points there are leaders that really embrace it, engage with the left. And that points there, you know, and then there are the other unions that, uh, wanted to appease Trump uh, and you know give him a chance when he got in office. So um, yeah, I feel like it's a pretty you know um, indicative of where the labor movement is at, just like constantly. It, it's interesting being in D.C. I mean, obviously everything Jonathan said, people at first were dismissive, then they were intrigued. Then a lot of unions felt when they needed to do something to be supportive. So, you know, whether sending teach supportive parties. But what's to me, what's most interesting is how much the Occupy message has stayed years later, that unions have embraced a lot of the rhetoric, you know, about the super rich and all that. And it's almost like it, it snuck up on people that it got in their DNA, it got in their bloodstream. And to me, you know, this may be a little far afield, but, um, you know, there's, um, some people talk about the 1919, the failed 1919 uh, steel strike as a disaster, and it set back the labor movement for years. But there's another view, which is that the uh, the 1919 strike, while lost, set the stage for the CIO, and that many of the people in that were were um, were trained, like the key leaders in the CIO, were rank and file strikers. And I think that's really what's happened with Occupy in a way that it's only that. 
it sort of, as I said before, it got into the DNA. It's really affected how people think in the biggest way. Um, and so that the impact was later, not initially, is a little bit of my reaction. Yeah, and you see that, I think you see a lot of the impacts of Occupy and how some of the really leftist um, union leaders and folks have um, really emerged mm-hmm. in the post-Occupy world, whether it's the Chicago's Teachers Union and the big strike they did, um, and even their analysis on Wall Street and Capitol, to the LA teachers, to the Minneapolis SEIU and their approach to organizing, um, that there is a very different faction of labor leaders. I mean, unfortunately, it hasn't been, you know, um, the overwhelming majority of labor leaders. And I think that, you know, we haven't seen that, but I think it has produced a new strain of labor leaders and, um, you know, locals across the country. Yeah. And it's it's interesting just on, on Jonathan's point, Bargaining for common good in some ways grew out of that whole moment because bargaining for common good was our attempt, is our attempt to align unions and community groups around, I think it was 2014, around the ongoing impact of the Great Recession. And so, again, and, you know, when Jonathan mentions, you know, Minnesota, where a lot of the most interesting work has happened recently, it was very much influenced by this whole idea. And I think this is probably the thing that's gotten more cemented by Occupy of, of having a different relationship between labor and community groups, less transactional. And the, you know, the word a lot of us have used is alignment, not coalition, which is we got common enemies and let's go after them together. So even if you look at the work on private equity and a lot of the anti-Wall Street work that is now embraced by labor, that was really infused and made possible by Occupy because it took something abstract and made it more real. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to ask sort of next that like, you know, after the eviction from Zuccotti and from the parks and other places, Minnesota being one of them, um, a couple of the places that Occupy Energy went were housing and debt, right? Student debt in particular. Um, And so, yeah, seeing those things come up in the CTU bargaining over homelessness, um, the uh, UTLA bringing housing issues to the bargaining table. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if you have sort of more thoughts, either of you, on how labor has and also hasn't, right? Like, where has it fallen down on the job of thinking about housing, considering there's a massive evictions crisis looming and starting in the U.S. right now? It's a missed bag, and honestly, it's it's mostly a pessimistic outlook from my vantage point about where folks have gone. I mean, I feel like there's there's been some really good um, work that's been done. I mean, the Bargaining for Common Good crew and a number of the labor unions that um, are very active in it. But I mean, I still think for the most part, there's a lack of vision on in terms of like what's really going on still in the country um, where, you know, labor density is still so low, more and more work has become precarious and, um, you know, contracted, you know, through apps and all these, you know, and I still think we're operating in the old model, um, you know, of labor organizing and, um, I think it, I think it's unfortunate. I mean, I do think there's a lot of great experiments that are happening. I mean, some of the bank worker organizing stuff that's going on, some of the Amazon worker organizing that's going on. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I, I think 
labor's still in a very protective phase of like, let's hold on to the small, small piece of the pie that we have. But that's my pessimistic view. I know Stephen has a more optimistic view about some of uh, our friends in labor. By all means. I, I don't know if I, I, I'd say optimistic, but maybe more hopeful than Jonathan. Um, the dilemma that we have right now is, you know, it's not a cliche to say that this is, you know, literally the moment where unions could do extraordinary things or exponentially go into quicker decline. And that the biggest danger I see for labor right now is, are we trying to go backwards? Or are we trying to go forwards? Which is, there's a seg- segment of the labor movement that if we could just, that say things like, if we were just as strong as we used to be, if we just had density, but if we had, I mean, New York state has some of the highest union density in the country and many unions there don't support progressive things. So the notion yeah. that if as a result of the Biden administration and if the PRO Act passes, which you know, is questionable that there will be a revival of labor, I think is that's, you know, wishful thinking. There will only be a revival of labor if we revive what we're fighting for and standing for. And if all we're saying we're about is helping people make slightly more money at the same time they're being evicted, or if the only thing we're about is saying you have more, you know, you can have a grievance procedure at work at the same time that the cops can beat you up on your way home from work. So I think that's really the challenge for labor. Are we about transformational change? Are we about just trying to survive as an institution? And I think that we're at an interesting moment here because uh, there's so much at stake here. But I think Jonathan's completely right. You know, we're going through the eviction crisis again. And even like when when New York Communities for Change make the road recently led the incredibly successful um, uh, hunger strike to win an ex- to win two point is it two point one billion dollars, Jonathan? You won for excluded yep. workers. Incredible victory. My memory is that unions were supportive, but they sort of signed on towards the end. It wasn't like I mean that the labor movement said, "Oh my God, we mm-hmm. could get we could fight for millions of dollars for the folks who need unions billions of dollars need unions." Yep. So I still think there's this idea that there's this good work going on there that labor sort of supports, but their core mission, as Jonathan was indicating, is protecting the base. And, you know, I continue to say in meetings with unions, the whole labor movement still has Stockholm syndrome. They are so mm-hmm. terrified of getting wiped out that they're afraid to challenge who's really out to destroy them. Yeah. 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 Um, so one of the big labor stories of the last decade um kicked off right there at nycc shortly after occupy we were talking of course about the fight for 15 which i remember at least at some point you used to get the credit for (laughs) um yeah i mean you know look i think occupy set the stage for a set of tactics that were you know employed within the fight for 15 um you know movement and i think you know i think it, I mean, in many ways, it goes back to my point about the, you know, creating the stage for like the modern protest movement is um, the fight for 15 in many ways, which, you know, obviously SEIU invested like a huge amount of resources in the building. Um, but, you know, to take a tactic of actually getting workers to strike and uh, do it differently than, um, you know, traditional labor organizing happens, which is, you know, very much behind the scenes and, um, you know, more passively filing with, you know, filing with the NLRB for an election, et cetera, et cetera. 
that uh, this was a very different movement that was built on protest. And I think that's what happened here in New York City. And then obviously it exploded around the country. Um, and then, you know, most states, I mean, you know, I think $15 an hour is, you know, generally the base wage of uh, workers in this country, even though Congress still has not raised the minimum wage since. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was built a lot off the spirit of the Occupy movement. And, um, you know, I think we owe a lot to Occupy in terms of why we were able to raise a wage from seven twenty-five to $15 an hour, you know, almost doubling the minimum, you know, double, actually more than doubling the minimum wage uh, in New York and in many states across the country. Um, a lot of that was built on the backs of the Occupy movement. You know, it's interesting, even the bank worker organizing in many ways grew out of Occupy because we were going on and on about how the banks were ripping people off. And then we got into conversation. And it was actually the Brazilian Bank Workers Union who said to us, well, why aren't you organizing the banks in the U.S.? It's sort of an ironic twist of history that the Brazilians were saying that their standards in Brazil were being driven down by the standards of bank workers in the U.S., meaning bank workers had more weight, better wages and benefits in Brazil. But the campaign, you know, the idea that what, what's so interesting with the bank worker organizing is that um, – is that we had dual demand. One is better pay and better conditions, but the second is this idea that workers shouldn't have to treat customers as a condition of employment. And so the bank worker organizing also led, you know, the organizing committee is the one who exposed Wells Fargo on cheating. So what's so interesting to me is that I don't think there would have been a big bank worker organizing campaign without Occupy because it was a logical next step and, and just as specifically, Bank of America just went to a minimum of $25 an hour. Um, almost all the banks dramatically raised pay. And it's a direct result of the bank organizing. But the bank organizing wouldn't have happened if there wasn't a huge bank, anti-bank feeling growing in the country. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that people were sort of prepared for particularly with the fight for 15, which, you know, a lot of its power came from being really visible and drawing people out to actions who weren't necessarily involved in going on strike at the time, um, was that you had all these people who were looking for something to do post-Occupy. But there has also been sort of diminishing returns to those tactics over the years, right? That like, for the first few fight for 15 strikes, it was big national news and these publications that had never been interested in, in, commissioning me before we're suddenly like, Hey, we need people to write about this. And now it, it kind of just elicits a shrug. Um, in a lot of places when there's a, you know, fight for 15 action, just like, okay. So yeah, I wonder if either of you have thoughts about sort of the tactical innovations that came out of Occupy and the way that those, you know, that, that essentially people learn to deal with and defang those and the need for continued innovation. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think the fight for 15 took a tactic that was useful and was exciting and beat it to death, <laughs> you know? And, like, there's only so many times you can do the same exact thing over and over and get different results. Um, so, I mean, I do agree with that sentiment. Um, and, I mean, I think one of the lessons from Occupy and I think from the protest movement it built is – that there has to be constant innovation in, you know, organizing in the field, in tactics, in, um, 
you know, in really elevating and highlighting what is is happening. And I'm just not I'm not sure that that's happening necessarily as much on the labor side as it is happening, you know, in like the Black Lives Matter movement space or um, in some ways in the climate movement spaces. Um, you know, I think there's 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 a lot more organizing and frankly, I think better organizing going on in a number of places uh, outside of the labor movement. I mean, in, in, in the housing movement, there's amazing organizing going that's doing amazing things. Um, but I think it, it stems from not using the same old, same old tactics and, um, you know, just repeating the same exact thing over and over again. And I think that's what's happened since the beginning of the Fight for 15 movement. Um, and frankly, a lot of us that were in the Fight for 15 movement have moved on to, you know, uh, to frankly, I think, housing organizing because the cost of housing is way outpacing wages in this country and probably globally. Um, is that if we don't rein in housing costs, like it doesn't matter how much you make. I mean, even $25 an hour or even $30 an hour is not going to be enough to live uh, in uh, in Brooklyn where I'm at. So I think that's where a lot of energy is being focused by a lot of us on the, on the, uh, on the left. But there's, I, I think there's a really important thread that we're teasing out here, which is this wash, rinse and repeat style of protest. And that if it worked once, we should do it again. And even, you know, that was some critique of how long you try to hold space. Is holding space the point mm-hmm. or are you in a space because you're doing certain things? And there is this sort of um, and, you know, when you look at the rich history of protest of the labor movement, I mean, sit ins and auto plants, all of, you know, you know, we're on the 100th anniversary of the Blair Mountain uprising, you know, which was. And so I think that this question for labor about if we're taking on the biggest and most powerful corporations in the history of the world, that somehow you're going to beat them with traditional picket lines or traditional tactics is just crazy. And so I wrote a piece um, right after Occupy where I basically said the dilemma for the labor movement is we're not strong enough to take on the most powerful companies in the world, but we have just enough assets that we're afraid to lose them. And I really think this is a dilemma. I don't know how many times, you know, is you know, employers filed RICO suits, which is racketeering lawsuits against unions, and the courts have clamped down. Unions do have this dilemma that the things that work create incredible liability. Almost everything that allows a union to win is unlawful. And so that's a real challenge for the labor movement, which is at what point do we say our crisis is so great, the opportunity is so real that we have to be willing to take much bigger risks because if we don't take risk and we do what we're allowed to do, we know the result is that we'll lose. Yeah, that's very, very, very real. Um, so the place I was going next, and Jonathan, you mentioned climate stuff. Um, you also mentioned before we turned the recorder on that you were um, deflooding your apartment this week. So it seems like an appropriate time to remember Occupy Sandy. And that kind of response, which again, I'm now I'm thinking about Nisna in terms of unions that were involved there um, and others, but that was the one that I sort of spent the most time with around then. Um, yeah, I, you know, I would love your thoughts on sort of Occupy Sandy and that kind of mutual aid work. And again, like how that, what lessons we took from that, what lessons labor could and didn't take from that. Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, I think, you know, the climate work is interesting. I mean, Occupy Sandy specifically, I think, you know, really completely transformed people's minds on the, the, the ability of mutual aid to really build broad-based movement. Because, um, I mean, I think a lot of those lessons were directly transitioned into the current pandemic moment where mutual aid um, you know, groups were popping up all over, you know, Brooklyn, all over New York City, and frankly, across the country. Um, and I, I think I think a lot of it to the mentality of like, we're only going to be able to take care of each other. Um, and the forces that be are not going to take care of us. Um, and, you know, we have to figure out solutions on our own. Um, and I think that's where we're seeing a lot of organizing take place now is that the traditional streams of organizing are just not working. So we have to be building different streams at the same time. And I think that's a lot of where folks are at in the climate movement uh, right now is that clearly nothing has worked to stem the, you know, um, the tide of climate change across the globe. And that we have to be figuring out new tactics to take on the fossil fuel companies uh, and the elites and, you know, frankly, Wall Street that owns a lot of the fossil fuel infrastructure at this point um, and how we take on those uh, folks to be able to, you know, live on this earth. And um, there, there's just not there's not solutions being presented by um, a lot of the mainstream organizing uh, groups and unions and uh, philanthropy. Um, and I think more and more we're beginning to see that we just have to go out and do this stuff on our own, um, regardless of, uh, you know, whether we're paid to do it or whether, uh, you know, um, we just need to get it done. But, but let me just, now that Jonathan or one of you accused me of being an optimist, let me give you two um, optimistic <laughs> things. You know, one is last year in, uh, in Minneapolis, the local 26 of SEIU janitors went on a climate strike. And when they struck, um, they struck demanding that there be a new training program to help janitors um, deal with global warming because buildings are the biggest emitters of greenhouse gas. And what was amazing is when those workers went on strike, um, they paired up with youth climate strikers. They had youth climate strikers come to the bargaining table and you had this incredible description of Guatemalan workers saying, I had to leave my own country because global warming made it impossible to farm. And now I'm in Minnesota. So incredible. I, you know, it was, I, we think, the first U.S. climate strike. And then the other thing, um, yesterday, the UAW issued a, uh, a Labor Day message saying they support zero emissions and they support electrification. And there's no contradiction or tension between good paying jobs and between fixing the, um, you know, starting to deal with climate change. So I do think there are getting to be on the union side, some people seeing that far from addressing climate change being bad for workers, that, you know, it's sort of where we start with workers of two lives, they have live at work and they have lives in their flooded communities. And so I think there is some movement on that. And specifically in the case of the auto workers, very exciting that the union is now aligning with environmental groups on the call that cars both be electric and they pay and treat people decently and respect union rights. That was my optimism for you. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think that's all good. I also 
worry that like individual electric cars are not also not a great solution to the problem really um but that's another story um I mean, not just cars. It's, right. the, yeah. it's, it's the elimination of internal combustion engines. Right. Right. I don't yeah. think that's, I mean, what I, what I was, you know, sort of in the strain of this discussion looking for is if we look at Occupy and we look at protest and we look at now we're, you know, in another eviction thing is can we do something different than 10 years ago in terms of labor and community? And I'd say at least from the bargaining for common good perspective, we have seen, as Jonathan mentioned, you know, they went on strike over housing in Chicago, the teachers, yeah. that there's all sorts of incredible work. And then the other thing that we you know, really should touch on is, you know, the, the, the role of essential workers mm-hmm. and how, you know, this pandemic and everything that's going on is exposed, both how important they are and how mistreated they are. So there are, I mean, I'm profoundly frustrated that, you know, we're not doing more, but I think there are some interesting moments. And I'd go back to where I started, which is I think when we look back in history in a couple more years, yeah. the number of people that are leading protest movements, working in unions, people who got radicalized, whose roots are occupied, I think will really surprise people. And I know there are some people that have been very cynical about Occupy. What did it accomplish? I think when we look backwards in a couple of years, we're going to say it really was a starting point in a mm-hmm. deep, deep way for a lot of things that are happening now. Yeah, I think the way that DSA has grown, the way that sort of the Bernie Sanders campaign took off, obviously, I think don't happen without Occupy. Um, and I'm thinking about the way that like the painters, for example, are engaging with like DSA eco-socialists to pass the PRO Act, um, which is a sentence that I really couldn't have imagined saying five years ago, because I couldn't have imagined there being DSA eco-socialists large enough to like be in collaboration with anybody, let alone a building trades union. Um, but you know, these are, these are things that are happening now, which I think is really interesting. Um, and there is this layer, as you were saying, of, of sort of different leadership coming up through some of these unions that is, um, if not sort of, you know, people who are sleeping in Zuccotti, certainly people who are looking around at what time it is and saying, yeah, we're going to have to start doing things differently. And that means not being terrified of getting red baited by pairing with DSA or something. Yeah. I mean, we we didn't really talk much about the politicization of what, you know, of Occupy and what it created. And I think, you know, it is a direct uh, line from Occupy to the DSA Bernie left um, in in, you know, in this country and probably, you know, also globally. Um, and, you know, and I do think that it's, it's becoming a bigger and bigger faction. I mean, you know, it was on the verge of, you know, potentially winning the White House a couple times now. So, you know, I mean, I just think it's the, the ideas that came from Occupy and, you know, are becoming more and more mainstream. Um, and I think it's it, it's it's just so interesting to me how in the moment everything seems so radical and crazy. And then you look a couple of years down the road, you're like, oh, wait, that was actually like completely normal and possible. Um, and I think that's that's the challenge to figure out in terms of like what's next in terms of organizing and, um, you know, where we go is, you know, we have to keep building. We can't use the same stayed stagnant, um, you know, forms of organizing. and um, you know, to build 
if we're if we're going to if we're going to approach the global crisis that's coming, um, you know, sooner rather than later, we have to really step up the organizing, the demands, and the militancy um, if we're going to win. I don't know if you all followed Moms for Housing, you know, that took over houses in Oakland, um, riffing on Jonathan's point. And two things that happened that were really interesting. One was three things, the level of popular support. Separately, the building trades actually volunteered to do repairs in the house. And third, it directly led to people getting elected to the Oakland City Council from Moms for Housing. And sort of to me that that captured like when Jonathan talks about creative and militancy, they took over a house, they fought the corporate landlord, they won. It led to winning a political battle and all sorts of things. And I think those are the kinds of things that we need to look for. You know, at a time of limited capacity, I guess to use a cliche, we have to get multiple bites of the same apple. And that really is, I think, one of the biggest challenges. How do we simultaneously say private equity companies that are getting rich bankrupting companies are both hurting workers and communities? So we have to get ourselves out of this. It's either labor or a community that it's really the exact same thing. We're fighting the same people. And it's in our alignment and going after them. You know, I still would love to simultaneously have a rent strike at Blackstone owned properties and organize the workers that Blackstone has, you know, doing maintenance at those places that we need to look at the synergy. And I think still, you know, maybe with Amazon, people are still in to get it. But understanding the level of corporate domination and control of our lives is the critical thing we have to get people to see. And we need to do multiple things to limit that. Yeah. One of the lasting images from the storm here in New York that just went by is literally the um, delivery driver in a flood going to deliver someone their fucking dinner. Uh, and like that's that's the like entire, you know, both, um, you know, climate collapse, labor collapse and complete disassociation of any like normal decency and humanity that exists right now that we're, we're challenging. And I do think that there is a broader movement building um, to take on um, a lot of the forces that we've been talking about. Um, And I think it's becoming more and more exposed. So. Yeah. You mentioned somebody getting elected to Oakland city council because of moms for housing. And that just reminded me that um, Sandy nurse is likely going to be on the New York city council who is like, one of the most sort of directly involved Occupy people that I can think of. That's, you know, there are a lot of people who were supportive who are in, you know, Jamani is now public advocate, Jamani Williams, I should say, for everybody who doesn't know New York politics the way we know New York, New York politics. Um, and Jamani and Idana yeah, certainly came out to Occupy marches. Um, but seeing Sandy on the city council is definitely... You know, it's like, oh, I, I know you from like, you know, seeing you when you've been sleeping at the park for five days and looked like you really needed a nap. Um, yeah. And now, you know, so it, it is interesting to see people in that space, not just being some of the movers and shakers behind some of the biggest union campaigns of the last several years, whether it's Nast around at the News Guild or, or Mary and others at CWA, um, but also, yeah, now going to be on city council. Yeah, no, I mean, I think Sandy, Sandy's amazing and will be an amazing council person. But I think it's also interesting, the, um, you know, uh, there's also, you know, I think there was a transition during the Occupy. It was kind of like, fuck the electoral everything. And um, the realization that we need all of these different bases to build off of. We need mm-hmm. to actually 
be protesting, but we need to be organizing and we need to actually be challenging power electorally um, and all those things. And I think, you know, we see that in Sandy joining the New York City Council is that um, we need to build electoral power and political power in a similar way that we built protest power. Yeah. And I think what's really key about what Jonathan said, because I was thinking the same thing, there's always been this, not always, but there's often been a, a dichotomy. There are the street people and the electoral politics people. And each group, I'm being simplistic to make a point, sort of makes fun of the other. And I think we're we're at a moment of, you know, because people that do elections say, well, elections matter. And then the people that do protests say, yeah, then we elect somebody who doesn't do anything. But I think we're at this interesting moment where we can talk about how they feed off of each other in a very mm-hmm. different way, that there's yeah. many less people who argue, well, you can't do big marches and civil disobedience and protests because that will hurt the ca- chance of our candidate winning, that, you know, the two things feed off of each other. And that really is would be is going to be really important going forward. And that's partly what didn't happen under Obama. You know, mm-hmm. everybody was deep banged, our guys in office, so we shouldn't be marching and protesting. Right. And, you know, ironically, Obama was one that said, make me do it. And we all said, well, he's a good guy. Why would we make him do it? So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. I do think this question that Jonathan's getting to and, you know, happened in Oakland with the election and all is seeing that movement building helps build electoral power versus if we just elect the right person, then we'll have a movement. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, and maybe, well, we need to wrap up. I want to give you guys a chance to say anything else. But one of the lasting images of this year, going back to the issue of housing, is Cori Bush occupying those Capitol steps, right? Somebody who comes out of the movement in Ferguson, who gets elected to Congress, and she doesn't play nice with them. And she didn't do what they wanted her to do. She was like, no, we're going to occupy these Capitol steps, you know, until we get action and it worked until the supreme court decided to ruin millions of lives yeah i mean i I think it it directly goes back to the radicalization that i think occupy started um that you know so many more people have become radicalized because of occupy and outgrowths of occupy um that you know there's there's a there's a different level of antagonism against the elites and the power structures in this country that um, a lot more of us are, you know, really willing to lean into and to challenge the, um, you know, corporate Democrat, you know, um, machine that exists right now. And, you know, I think, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I don't think we have enough power. I think that's very clear. We don't have enough power to be able to, to, to take down um, the, you know, the, these systems that exist, um, you know, that are keeping us all in poverty and on the, on the brink of uh, eviction. But I do think um, it's building and we have a lot more of it than we did in 2011 when this thing started. I would just, I want to go back to where Jonathan started because he started off talking about international stuff. And I just think that's really, really I don't mean into international solidarity. That's a whole longer conversation. But I do think this discussion is we always have to be clear that this isn't just happening in the United States. All the stuff we're talking about is happening globally. If you look at the right wing sort of stumbling attempts at a coup in Brazil yesterday, you know, where they marched Mm -hmm. on the Supreme Court. And I just think as we as we go forward, that there is a crisis of capitalism. There's a crisis of the rise of the radical nationalists, ethno-nationalists around the world. 
and we have to, you're in London right now, you know this more than anybody. And so I do think as we think going forward that we have to not look at this just as a perspective of, well, if only if we get a few more votes in Michigan and Pennsylvania, everything will be fine. That there's a global phenomenon going on. And I think that's the other thing that's so much clearer than at the beginning of Occupy, the question of white supremacy, the question of how capitalism operates. And then, you know, we sort of touched on the environment because it's, it's so much in our face, but more people than ever, you know, know that the world's screwed if we don't do something. And so I feel like if you made, if I was a man, you know, if I was a uh, sociologist from Mars and I was looking at Earth saying, what's going on there? You'd say conditions are ripe for radical change. But I think the key thing to me is it's not going to stay in the middle. It's going to either go radically to the right or radically to the left. And the and the moderate call of let's try to get a middle path is actually the call to let the right wing seize power. And so I think if we think about this globally, if we think about all of that, it both is inspiring and gives hope. And it's also terrifying because if we don't do the right things and we don't organize on the scale and do all the stuff that Jonathan talked about earlier, then we actually know it's going to happen because we're seeing it all over the world with these horrible right wing nationalist governments taking over. Yeah. Is there anything you guys think we've missed or do you think we hit all of the uh, important parts to yell at the labor movement to do better? (laughs) (laughs) I, the only thing I throw out, and this is a, a pet peeve and may not be relevant at all, but there is a section of the left that's discovered the labor movement and (laughs) Sorry. And what's frustrating is like they've discovered the labor movement of the 50s and want to rebuild it. If I see one more thing about the importance of first step grievance procedures, as if the problem, you know, this is how you do a first step. There, there's a segment of the left that doesn't understand what it takes to really beat corporations and that kind of battle. And that's really what I'd end with, which is ultimately we've talked about government. We've talked about all of this. But if the left is going to embrace unions and they also need to embrace that we don't need, you know, that it's not a first step grievance. It's not, you know, um, all the traditional technocratic stuff of unions that's exciting. It's a challenging of corporate power and that that's the kind of unions that we need to create. You know, the way we used to joke about it in Justice for Janitors and our self-criticism is a building owner is terrible because they're destroying the world and not paying janitors decently. And then they go union and they're okay. And I think the other thing the labor movement has to learn how to do is we can settle with a corporation on collective bargaining issues, but that doesn't mean we need to embrace everything else bad about them and that we need to learn how to both fight companies and how they treat workers, but also simultaneously fight them on how they're destroying the, uh, the, uh, the environment and the world. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Jonathan Weston, director of New York Communities for Change, and labor organizer Stephen Lerner talking to Sarah Jaffe about Occupy 10 Years On. And you can catch the next installment in this series in two weeks. We're going to feature Ruth Milkman, labor scholar at the City University of New York, and labor organizer Nasteran Mohit, talking about how Occupy helped change our perspectives on what it means to organize. 
And that is it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks as always to Natasha and Colin for making us sound good. And if you'd like to support our independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash belabored. There you can also get some really neat swag designed by noted movement artist Molly Crabapple as a special gift. And if you want to listen to all of our past archived episodes, you can go to dissentmagazine.org, where you can also support Descent Magazine by subscribing. And we want to hear from you on this 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. Were you there? Did it help change the way you think about activism or inequality or labor? And we also want to hear from you if you're trying to organize at your local Starbucks, or maybe your community is struggling with the recent cutoff in unemployment benefits, or you're trying to help people deal with an impending wave of evictions, or maybe you're a teacher nervous about being forced to go back to work as the pandemic continues to haunt our communities. We want to hear from you, so get in touch with us via email at belabored at descentmagazine.org, or you can catch us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.